Welcome to the Waukesha Bible Church Podcast. We believe the Bible tells a single story, and at the center of that story is Jesus. If you like what you hear today, additional sermons, teaching sessions, and written material can be found on our website at waukeshawbible.org. We hope you enjoy today's episode. Good morning. Today's scripture reading will be Romans 3, verses 21 through 31. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus whom God put forward as propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness, because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time, so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No. But by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also. Since God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith, do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. Thank you. Please be seated. I trust and hope you are well. I am so thankful that you have chosen to join us on this Sunday morning. An elderly woman in France had the surprise of a lifetime in September of 2019. She had hanging in her kitchen a picture that was no bigger than a piece of paper. It just so happened that the picture was a part of a threefold painting done in 1280. And an auctioneer valued the picture in her kitchen at $7.7 million. It sold for $26.6 million. Now, I'm wanting to be that lady. I am hoping someone somewhere sees something in my house that is worth millions. Unfortunately, many believers fail to realize what they actually have in the gospel. And as a result, never fully appreciate or access the wealth that is truly theirs. You and I have that kind of wealth at our disposal in Christ Jesus, in the gospel. Unfortunately, we live like the spiritually dead when we are spiritually wealthy beyond anything we could possibly ask or think. Our current series is titled, The Immeasurable Riches of Christ. And we are seeking to unpack and celebrate our true wealth in Christ. Today's study answers the question, why does Jesus matter? It seeks to help us understand the gospel as to its necessity, as to its glory, and as to its appropriation. In the course of this study, we might have many questions. We might say, well, what about X, Y, and Z? And part of the purpose of the series is to answer the question. Now, in answering the question, you might not like what we say, and it might not satisfy your understanding, but we will address the area of concern. And thus, it is an eight-part study. And each of the lessons walks us into the next. They're not disconnected. They're part of a whole. So when we talk about the redemption of God and the justification of his people and his wrath and justice being placated or propitiated, it creates for us identity. We move from Adam into Christ. So each of the lessons build off the previous and feed us into the next. James Gray was the president of Moody Bible Institute. And in 1905, he penned these words. Not have I gotten but what I received. Grace has bestowed it since I have believed. Boasting excluded, pride I abase. I am only a sinner that is saved by grace. Once I was foolish and sin ruled my heart, causing my footsteps from God to depart. Jesus has found me, happy my case. I now am a sinner that is saved by grace. Tears unavailing, no merit had I. Mercy had saved me or else I must die. 
Sin had alarmed me, fearing God's face, but now I am a sinner that is saved by grace. Suffering a sinner whose heart overflows, loving his Savior to tell what he knows. Once more to tell it, would I embrace? I am only a sinner that is saved by grace. Only a sinner saved by grace. Only a sinner saved by grace. This is my story. To God be the glory. I am only a sinner saved by grace. Amen? Let us begin with a word of prayer. Our Father, we sit here as your children by adoption. Jesus has done for us what we could never have done for ourselves. We are only sinners that are saved by grace. As we consider the immeasurable riches of Christ, we are rightly overwhelmed. Help us to see that our good is not the gospel. Only Jesus is the gospel. May we receive by faith all of the goodness done for us in Christ. May we not doubt. May we not seek to undermine its glory by believing we can somehow in some way pay you back. Help us to see and hear how we are right with you. Our debt has been paid and your justice and wrath have been appeased. May we not like shelf these ideas, but may we carry them with us throughout each day and in our moments of darkness and despair. Holy Spirit, teach us right now. May your words wash over us and sink deeply into our souls. We thank you, Father, for what you have done and will do in these moments. In Jesus' name, amen. Almost without exception, we become dulled and impervious to world news. For example, the earthquake that has taken place In just a matter of time, we will forget it and move on to the next big thing. Even the most horrific acts seem to come and go so quickly that no one is able to fully appreciate and process the gravity of what is heard and experienced. Yet the Apostle Paul, what he does in our text is most shocking. It is scandalous what he says about the gospel for both the Jew and the Gentile. The cross scandalizes the Jew and the Greek. Neither could visualize nor accept such upside-down thinking that one would die in order that I might be set free. No one would have thought that the redemption of humanity would follow the path it did. God himself would become incarnate and die a substitutionary, sacrificial death in behalf of sinners. Romans chapter 11, verses 33 through 36, captures Paul's response to the scandalous nature of of the cross. We read, Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who became his counselor or who has first given to him that it might be paid back to him again? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. And this is where we find ourselves in Romans chapter 3, verses 21 through 31. From last week's study, we noted how what we once were, we no longer are, but still have. I am no longer, as a believer, in Adam. He does not form for me my identity before the Father. Now we are in Christ. Jesus becomes for us our defining identity before the Father. You are either in Adam or you are in Christ. And this identity declares whose you are and who you are. I am a child of the king. I am a son of God. Not in the same manner or way that Jesus is, but I am a son and child of God. As are you if you know Jesus. For a seasoned Christian, the words we are considering inside of our texts are not new. The idea of justification or redemption or propitiation. I, I love, as I said in the past, just saying the word propitiation. It's a great word. Those words are not new for us. Now, the implications of those words might be, but the words themselves are not. Those words mean something, and those words in the vertical changes my horizontal. But the words mean something, and I believe these words do matter, and what they mean matter. And I believe these vertical truths do shape and impact our present. Right now, I am justified. 
Right now, I have been redeemed from sin's debt. Right now, the wrath of God against me, the justice of God, which I am in violation of, has been satisfied in my behalf by the person of Christ. Amen. That's incredible stuff. Too much of Christianity believes in the gospel for their justification, but do not believe the gospel for their sanctification, for the Christian life. And clarity, which is our hope and endeavor during the study, is to bring clarity in this area. Now, why does this matter? The difference between you and an unbeliever is not your behavior. It's not your behavior, but your belief. Although I believe how you live is as good or better than most. How you live isn't that much different than a radical Mormon, a radical Jehovah Witness, or a Muslim. The difference is in what you believe. And that belief changes and transforms behavior. But there are a lot of good people out there who are going to hell. And why? Because they don't believe the gospel. What you believe and I believe about the gospel and its implications is radically different than the Mormon, than the Jehovah Witness, and the Muslim. The gospel is the difference. And the gospel deals fundamentally with the vertical, with your relationship before the Father. And that is what is most important. One day I will stand before the Father. And if I am answering for myself, there is no hope. But if I have someone who is standing in my place, and his name is Jesus... I have hope. I have hope not just for the future, but I have hope in the present. Throughout our study of Romans chapter 3, verses 21 through 31, we read the word righteous, righteousness, justice, justification. All of those English words come from the same family of words. They're all siblings. It's a big family, but they all come from the same family. This passage explains God's rightness or justice in accepting sinners, you and I, as righteous or as just. And on what basis can God Almighty receive us? This passage answers that question. And it does not matter whether you are a Jew or a Gentile, whether you are male or female, bond or free. Jesus is the leveler. And that's what this text does for us. It answers the question. And there are three parts to Paul's explanation of God's righteousness and then a threefold response or challenge by his audience. And, and when you say to someone, the answer to the vertical is Jesus and Jesus only, and it's by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, and all you have to do is believe that, the response can be, it sounds too simple, it sounds too easy. There must be something that I must do. And you have that response at the end of this paragraph. But there are three statements or ideas within the text that we need to walk through to fully appreciate what we do have in the gospel. We begin with the gospel's necessity. In verse 21, it says, But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Something is happening outside the law, and I'll clarify that in just a moment. It has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. And here's why. Because there's no distinction for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. But we are all under sin, and therefore we need what God is going to provide for us in Christ. Now the passage assumes... We know what the righteousness of God means. And I want us to pause for just a minute to define the righteousness of God. The word righteousness, as found in chapter 3, verse 21, occurs in 30 verses in Romans. There's a preponderance of the word in Romans. Righteousness, rightness, justification, justice, just. 
And then its sibling occurs in seven more verses. And in our passage, it is found in the following verses. And again, as we read chapter 3, 21 through 31, we come across that word in verse 10 and 21, 22, 25, 26. And we could again read the passage, but you would just see the word being repeated. There's a high idea concerning the word righteousness. And the righteousness of God in our passage is the alignment with what he sees, what God sees and does with who he is. God declares right. That's what the word justification is in our text. God is acting rightly and he declares right those who were wrong. Prior to the coming of Christ, prior to our faith in Christ, we were wrong. That's the gospel's necessity. You need Jesus. Now, I know the bulk of you understand that. Amen? But if you're new to our fellowship... I am telling you, you need Jesus. You need Jesus. This is why Jesus Christ came. He came to help his people, to make his people, to cause his people to be right because of the person and work of Jesus. God declares right those who are wrong. The declaration makes them acceptable by him and accessible to him. See, because of Jesus, I am accepted by him and I have access to him. The means through which this acceptability and accessibility happens for the sinner is in the person and work of Jesus. And that is called justification. The word justification means that God is declaring you right. You're right. And I grew up in a context within Christianity which was always appealing to the fellowship to get right. They would ask the question, are you right with God? Well, if you are justified, you are right with God. And that's not based on you, but on Him. Romans chapter 8, verses 33 and 34 reads, Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. You are not the one who justifies. God is. Who is the one who condemns? Jesus Christ is the one who died. Yes, rather, the one who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. The doctrine of justification. We know a couple things about this doctrine. The first thing is this. It is apart from the law. The law cannot, verse 21, the law cannot justify. The purpose of the law shows the rightness of God, but in so doing shows the wrongness of humanity. When I look at the law, what I see is a violator of law. Because the law cannot save. In my reading through the Old Testament story, I am negatively impacted or impressed by the deep-seated rebellion capturing the human heart. If I am learning anything from the book of Numbers and Judges, I see a people who are abrasively rebellious, disturbingly lawless, and profoundly immoral, even though they are people of the Mosaic Covenant. They stand in violation of the law. Why? They are sinners. They cannot keep the law perfectly. Paul tells us that the law is holy, righteous, and good, but he will also tell us it delivers death and condemnation because we are transgressors of it. We can't keep it. Paul also tells us in our passage that the law does indeed serve as a witness. Not only is it apart from the law our justification, but it also and equally is witnessed by the law. It does what the law cannot do. As we will see, the law's deficiency is rooted in humanity's inability. But the law testifies. It declares. Calvary lays out God's love for his people. But it is more than his love for us. Calvary fixes the fall. That's what Calvary does. It is God's corrective so that what he set out to do will be done. Calvary is God's absolute demonstration of his commitment to his vision for creating. Calvary says not just, I love you, but I will fix the problem. That's what Calvary does. The, the, the law is unable. It's deficient. It cannot justify. The Old Testament law and storyline does exactly what it is supposed to do. It points to and prepares us for Jesus. We understand that when we read the Old Testament, when we read the law, we do not read it correctly until we have read it through the lens of the New Testament and we see Jesus. Jesus does for us what the law could have never done. The next thing we see inside that initial thought of the gospel's necessity is not only because the law is deficient, but because we are unable. 
we have sinned. We are sinners before God and we are condemned by God. It says, all have sinned and come short. All have sinned. The tense speaks of a past fact. Coming short is a present reality. The Bible makes it clear that everyone everywhere at all times is lost and in need of Jesus. And the issue isn't simply in the horizontal. The issue is in the vertical. Not only do we sin, but we exist under the cloud of sin. We can't escape it on our own. When we read the text, we know that we are sinners and we know we are in need of a Savior. What has sin done? Sin has created a debt that we cannot pay. It's created a gap that we cannot span. It's created a vacuum that we cannot fill. It's created a shame or a guilt that we cannot cover. It's created a stain that we cannot remove, an alienation that we cannot reconcile, and a weight that we cannot lift. When we say you can't, what is it that you can't do? You can't save yourself. You in yourself cannot change the vertical. That's what sin has done. That's what sin does. And the pain that you and I feel and experience in this life, in this horizontal, is all a consequence of sin. There would be none of this without sin. Yet it is against this massive spiritual vacuum that we walk into our next section, and the next section is the gospel's glory. So look what happens inside of our text. It says, but now, if you look at verse 20 inside of Romans 3, it reads as follows, for by works of the law, no human being will be justified, will be made right or declared right in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. It shows sin to be a transgression. Verse 21, but now, in contrast to that, the righteousness or rightness or justice of God has been manifested apart from the law. And where are we going to see this? In Jesus. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, they're all pointing and preparing the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction. Why is that true? For all have sinned, past fact, and fall short of the glory of God, a present reality. And those same people are going to be justified by His grace as a gift. That's where it gets good. The gospel's glory. If it isn't a gift, none of us would be saved. Justified, declared right by His grace as a gift through the redemption, through this means, through the redemption, the buying back through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. And notice this whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received how? By faith. Not by works, by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. Verse 26, it was to show his righteousness, his rightness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. The gospel's glory. There are several thoughts about this provision of righteousness by God, and these are our power words. They're the gift words. Justification, God declaring us righteous. Redemption, God paying our sin debt. Propitiation, the justice and wrath of God being satisfied, placated, stopped by the redemptive work of Christ. And God's vindication, God is right. He is just in justifying those who believe in Jesus. And why? Because of what he has done, not because of what we do. It's all about Jesus. Our text says the glory of our justification. And I would love to have a protracted study on the idea alone. But the thought of justification, and it's repeated throughout our passage, says that in the court of law, it's a legal word, in the court of law, guilt has been pardoned. Now, I can be guilty in the horizontal. If I'm driving, and I, and I don't want to confess anything publicly, but if I'm driving, and I look in my rearview mirror, and I see a police car, I immediately, whether I am guilty or not, I immediately slow down. 
If I'm driving and I happen to pass a police officer parked on the side of the road, the first thing I do is look at my speedometer and see if I am guilty. That's horizontal guilt. But because of what Jesus Christ has done in his person and work, I am no longer ever guilty in the vertical. Because of Jesus, God is not keeping score. Hallelujah, praise his name. That's the glory of your justification. The glory of your redemption in verse 24, the freeing of the indebted. The word redemption should remind us of the exodus from Egypt where God redeemed his people. Here in the first century, the imagery is that of a slave market where you are indebted and someone comes and pays your debt. And it's not that you now are in bondage again. You're freed, but you are free in Christ. As those redeemed by Christ, we have no debt before the Father that Jesus has not addressed. That is the glory of our redemption. The glory of his propitiation. And, and it, this is such a beautiful word. And this is the scandalous nature of what God has chosen to do. Not only are you justified by his grace as a gift, and it's through the redemption, the redemptive activity of God enables God, empowers God to declare you justified or right. And the redemptive work of Jesus has placated, has answered the just sentence against you and the wrath of God against you. But the word propitiation is a great word. That word propitiation is the same word that's used for mercy seat in, a, in the Septuagint or Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible. It is a temple word. It's a word where wrath is being appeased. In the crucifixion of Jesus Christ and the sacrifice of Christ at the cross, it conciliates God who would otherwise be offended by human sin and would demand penalty for it. This word, this idea is the word used on the Day of Atonement when the high priest would enter into the Holy of Holies and offer up sacrifice for himself and for that of the nation. God in that moment would be propitiated. God would be placated. And the startling thing in this verse is that Paul here speaks of a public display being openly manifested so that all can see. It was Christ's death which was the propitiatory deed. See, you're not propitiated. You're not placated. It's God. You and I are under the just sentence of death. You and I are under the righteous sentence of condemnation. But in the death of Christ, the substitutionary sacrifice, where he voluntarily offers up himself in our behalf, that death, the perfect life, satisfies the sentence of justice against us and the wrath of God against us. That's propitiation. God is appeased. And the unique feature of the biblical idea is without parallel in pagan religion. It is that God himself provides the means of propitiation and expiation. God does this for us. That's a woo. The great reformer Martin Luther stated, If I could believe that God was not angry with me, I would stand on my head for joy. Standing on your head for joy. That's what we have in Christ. And this is what the gospel does. God is no longer angry with you. God is not angry with you. You might say, well, Pastor Pat, you don't know what I have done or what I do. God is not angry with you in Christ. That's why you need the gospel. Justification solves the problem of man's guilt before a righteous judge. Redemption solves the problem of man's slavery to sin, the world, and the devil. Propitiation solves the problem of offending God, our creator. God is propitiated. And in that, God is vindicated. And that's the glory of his vindication. Verse 26 says, It was to show his righteousness at the present time, so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. God in forgiving sinners, God in forgiving sinners, was accused of being soft towards sin. On what right or basis can you say you're forgiven? On what right or basis can you say they are now right with God? He was accused of being too generous. He was accused of being too lavish in his distribution of mercy and grace. 
Yet here at the cross, God is being vindicated. God has no basis for pardoning the guilty, except for what the person and work of Jesus has done. What God does in and through his Son is just. He can justify those who believe in the righteousness of God's actions. Now, the scripture is intentional in its language. Your justification comes through his redemptive activity. And as a consequence of this redemptive action, God's justice and God's wrath is satisfied. And he can now, because of Jesus, declare you righteous. If you look at your life, could you say, well, I I am righteous? God should be able to accept me based on my work? If you can say that, you need Jesus. It is because of who Jesus is and what Jesus has done that we are now united with him by faith. Jesus, in his perfect life, in voluntary substitutionary death, redeems sinners. His action is the trigger that allows all other actions to take place. We could turn to a multiplicity of passages like Ephesians 1, 7, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. Or Galatians 4, verse 5, so that he might redeem those who are under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. The implications of the gospel caused me to really see for the first time what was taking place. It's so severe that I struggled with it. Whether we are or are not right in God's eyes is not based on our ability to perform, but on His. The free gift of God isn't an enablement. It's a rescue. It isn't a band-aid, but a resurrection. He did for me what I could have never done for myself. He redeemed me. He declared me righteous. He placated Himself through the sacrifice of His Son. And there is nothing that I could do to undo what God has done. I am always in Christ righteous. Woo! I am always in Christ free of debt before the Father. Woo! And I am always, always under the good pleasure of God because all the wrath of God was poured out on Jesus at the cross. Woo! To save us, and think of this, to save us, Christ had to pay the debt because of our inability to do so. When he paid the debt, he did so in full. He did not leave any behind. None was left for us to consider. Never can we be a debtor to God for our sin. As far as our Father is concerned, the sin issue has been addressed in full. Human depravity is no match for divine generosity. We cannot outspend God. It is from this significant redemptive action on his part that God's righteous judgment and wrath on transgressors and violators has been met and satisfied. You think about the passage. Could the law do for me what I needed done? No. God had to do it. And when he did it, he did it in the person and work of Jesus. And when he did it, he was able to justify sinners, redeem the enslaved, and satisfy his righteous wrath against us. He did that. How do I then appropriate that gospel? I want that. We often talk about the five solas of the Reformation. Well, salvation, and this is where we get it from in Romans chapter 3, verses 21 through 31, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. That's what our text tells us. The gospel that you and I have offered to us is a free gift. When you read the text, we are justified, verse 24, by his grace as a gift, not works, not a reward, as a gift, and it's freely given without cause, for there's no distinction. We need it because we are sinners. And it's through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. It's found nowhere else in our world. 
You cannot ju- be justified before God apart from Christ. You cannot be redeemed from sin's debt apart from Christ. You cannot satisfy, appease, placate the wrath of God against you apart from Christ. It is all Christ, Christ, Christ. It is by grace alone. You read the text. Whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just. He would be vindicated against his accusers. And he would be the one who justifies or makes right and declares right the one who has faith in Jesus. Do you believe Jesus? Do you have faith in Jesus? It's a free gift offered to you by grace. You simply appropriate it by faith. Do you believe? And if you believe in Jesus, he declares you righteous. If you believe in Jesus, your sin debt against the Father has been paid in full. If you believe in Jesus, then the violation of his justice and the outpouring of wrath has been finally answered, appeased, satisfied, and placated. All by faith. All by faith. That's the path we are on. What is absolutely stunning about all of this, okay? Now, right now, you might say to yourself, well, Pastor Pat, I believe you. I believe that's what has transpired in the gospel. But someone sits there and says to you, it it sounds absolutely too good to be true. Are you telling me right now before the Father in Christ, I have been declared and am right? Yes. Are you telling me that my sin debt against him has been answered fully by Christ? Yes. Are you telling me that the justice of God and the wrath of God has been satisfied in Christ? Yes. Not just then, but now, right now. And when you stand before the Father at the great judgment seat of Christ, those same things will be operating in your behalf. And yet it's, it almost sounds too good to be true. So watch what happens. There's three questions that are asked at the end of our text. Then what becomes of our boasting? I mean, what about me? Is it excluded? Yes. Then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. You have no grounds, no basis to boast. Why? Because it's all about Jesus. By what kind of law? By the law of works? No. But by the law of faith. Whatever you have, you have because of faith, not because of works. The second question. Is God the God of the Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? I mean, is this just for the Jews? Or are you, are you including those stinky Gentiles? Let's hope he is, right? I mean, and what is it? Is he the God of the Jews only? No. It also includes Gentiles. Hallelujah. These are the questions that are asked from the text. And then notice the last question. Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means, on the contrary, we uphold the law. May it never be. At the cross, Jesus cried in the statement of release and triumph, it is finished. The debt has been paid, the gap has been spanned, the vacuum has been filled, the shame and guilt has been covered, the stain has been removed, the alienation has been reconciled, and the weight has been lifted. That's what's finished. Jesus does exactly what the law said he would do, and in so doing, brings the law to its rightful end. God's accusers are silenced. We think at the great judgment seat of Christ, it's going to be chatty. People are going to be talking about how wonderful they are. They will be silenced. His justifying of sinners is valid. He is vindicated. God himself is declared just even as he declares sinners just. Because the vindication of God rests solely, solely in the person and work of Jesus. There is a corrective that we must make. When we say, well, God does his part and I must do mine, 
We are making the accusation that what he has done isn't enough. In his classic work, Autosoterism, it's the plan of salvation, the second chapter, the great Reformed theologian B.B. Warfield notes, there are fundamentally only two doctrines of salvation. That salvation is from God, and that salvation is from ourselves. The former is the doctrine of common Christianity. The latter is the doctrine of universal heathenism. And yet today, in our modern church, we have this ancient heresy in what was and is called Pelagianism. When we treat not just justification, but sanctification as a synergistic work. God does his part, and then we do ours. That is undermining the great work of God. God does. And because God does, we do. But God does. And the Heidelberg Disputation, which I think is one of the great documents that came out of the Reformation, and we've studied it in the past. It's available in our, our foyer. And we looked at it again in church history on Wednesday night. But Martin Luther, in writing the Heidelberg Disputation, makes the statement, the person, and he wrote this in 1518, six months after October 31st, 1517. He wrote, the person who believes that he can obtain grace by doing what is in him. I can earn what God offers. That's what he's saying. Adds, he concludes, adds sin to sin so that he becomes doubly guilty. With grace, we simply receive it. Folks, we don't think too highly of the cross when we help God. We think too lowly of the cross. You cannot think too much about the cross, about grace, about God, and about Jesus and be wallowing in the cesspool of human achievement. Where is boasting then? There is none. None. So where do we go from here? Well, first, your justification, redemption, and propitiation from the text do not rest on you, but on Jesus. God being satisfied with you does not rely on you, but on Jesus. We often become complacent with what is common and familiar, but the gospel, the gospel is anything but common and familiar. The gospel is supernatural and miraculous. Being saved or born again is a point-in-time event, but it is anything but stagnant and stationary. The gospel is dynamic and powerful, not just at the front end, but in every waking moment in between our first breath and our last It is the gospel. Secondly, have you heard what has been said? Somewhere in there, there should be joy. Do not allow the devil to snatch this good seed from your thinking. Go back over the material. Pick up the manuscript in the foyer and look at what was said. Grab one idea or thought and think on that thing. Think about justification. Do you know right now that you are right with God? And you'd say to me, Pastor Pat, you don't know what I did last night. You don't know what I did Friday night. You don't know what I did this morning. Surely because of what I have done, I can't be right with God. The text says that he has declared you right. And why? Because of Jesus. Because of Jesus. Grab that idea and think on it. Write that thought down in your own words. Write down how you think, how you feel. Rethink and rewrite. The idea is already true. How does that idea show itself in your thinking and acting? Find someone then. Find someone to share that idea with and grow from. In light of this profound and supernatural truth, all of what we have said, how does the gospel inform and shape my response as a single person? As someone who is married as a parent, an employer, a citizen, or a disciple of Jesus. The gospel is transforming you. It renews your mind. Now live with that renewed and transformed mind in your daily life. It'll change the way you think. It'll change the way you look at your world. For example, in your moments, in your moments of being alone, you can have thoughts of despair. You think, well, nobody has reached out to me. I go to my Facebook page and it's empty. There's nothing in my email box. We're like, hallelujah, praise the Lord. 
And you allow that to fester. And you begin despairing. You feel abandoned. You feel isolated. You feel lonely. And you have this crippling anxiety and there's confusion. See, the devil wants you to believe. The devil wants you to believe that he's disappointed and distant. That he looks down and he sees you and he shakes his head and he thinks, What a loser. The devil wants you to believe you do not measure up. That you're always coming short. That you are a spiritual zero. The devil wants you to believe that your struggles are uncommon and your feelings of doubt and anxiety are because you lack faith to believe. There's no one else in all the world just like you. You are a loser. The devil wants you to believe that if you just do enough to get right, then everything would turn around. That The devil wants you to believe that God is angry with you because you have failed him and you are such a disappointment. That you are not right with him and every sin you have ever committed continues to Add to the imbalance in his ledger. He's keeping score. Friend, those are all lies of the devil. The father says, the father says, the sin debt against him has been paid. The father says, the wall between you and him has been abolished. The violation of his law has been satisfied. The charges against you have been dropped. The weight of the past wrongs have been lifted. The father says, The righteousness of Christ has been imputed. The distance between you and him has been removed and the status of child has been granted. Come here and let me give you a hug. Because the gospel is so radically good news, it's radical, it's radical, we seek to soften its impact by explaining away its goodness. But in the gospel, there are no buts or breaks. You are right with God, but... The debt has been paid, but. The Father's wrath against you has been placated, but. No, the gospel is so radically good news. Jesus is so thorough in what he has done in your behalf that there are no buts or breaks. It's all praise Jesus. And from that comes the overflow. Just as you cannot do anything to save yourself, neither can you do undo what the Father has done. There is nothing you can do to change what God has declared true. Every single doubt and failure and addiction and struggle you have in this life cannot undo what the Father has done and the Son has secured and the Spirit has affirmed to be true. We struggle in the horizontal. We are perpetually saying no to the flesh and making no provision for it. But in the midst of the struggle, you are still a child of God. Your battle in the present to somehow merit the favor of God is finished. You must not allow the devil to tell you otherwise. We are to live as the free people of God, serving one another, declaring his truth to the lost and dying world. The late Mike Iaconelli, he passed away in 2003, and he worked inside of youth in the church, tells a true story about grace. A young woman named Margaret had spent decades battling depression and anxiety that were traced back to a horrible day in school when a teacher frustrated with her tardiness, made her stand in front of the room and invited all the students to come up to the board and write something bad about her on the chalkboard. The kids were ruthless, as kids can be. They wrote things like, Margaret is ugly, Margaret smells, Margaret is stupid. All 25 students went up to the board and wrote these hurtful things. This event inflicted wounds that Margaret found difficult to heal. She battled depression, discouragement, and was angry all the time. Finally, she went to a counselor for help. She spent two years meeting weekly, but finally they had reached the end of their sessions. Iaconelli tells this story. He said, the counselor said, Margaret, I know this will be difficult, but just to make sure you're ready to move on, I am going to ask you to do something. I want to go back to your schoolroom and detail the events of that day. Take your time. Describe each of the children as they approach the blackboard and remember what they wrote and how you felt. Do this for all 25 students. In a way that would be easy for Margaret. For 40 years she had remembered every detail and yet to go through that nightmare one more time would take every bit of strength she had. After a long silence she began the painful description. One by one she described each of the students vividly as though she had just seen them stopping periodically to regain her composure, forcing herself to face each of those students one more time. Finally, she was done, and her tears would not stop. She could not stop. Margaret cried a long time before she realized 
Someone was whispering her name. Margaret. 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 She looked up to see her counselor staring in her eyes, saying her name over and over again. Margaret stopped crying for a moment. Margaret, you, you left one person out. I certainly did not. I have lived with this story for 40 years. I know every student by heart. No, Margaret, you did forget someone. See, he's sitting in the back of the classroom. He's standing up, walking toward your teacher. She is handing him a piece of chalk and he's taking it. Margaret, he's taking it. Now he's walking over to the blackboard and he's picking up an eraser. He's erasing every one of the sentences the students wrote. They are gone, Margaret. They are gone. Do you recognize him yet? Yes, his name is Jesus. Look, he's writing new sentences on the board. Margaret is loved. Margaret is beautiful. Margaret is gentle and kind. Margaret is strong. Margaret has great courage. And Margaret began to weep. But very quickly, the weeping turned into a smile and then into laughter and then into the tears of joy. True story. And that is our story. God desires for his children to know, to choose, and to feel the full measure of his person and work. Jesus says that you and I now are ambassadors of this great truth, this good news. Now, go and tell. May God once more condescend and grace us with the overwhelming sense of his unconditional love. God in Christ declares you right. God in Christ has canceled the debt. And God in Christ has fully met the sentence against you and fully absorbed his wrath for you. Please stand with me as we close in prayer. Our Father, we have been the Margarets. Many of us have been verbally and physically abused and have a skewed view of who we are in Christ. And it's my prayer that today this passage would wash away all of this filth and that we would begin to see ourselves as you see us in your Son. Father, we are deeply humbled to know that you have loved us this much. We are humbled to know that Jesus died to secure for himself a people who will give you all of the glory. Father, may we live our lives in humble service and gratitude. May we be the channels through which your lavish generosity shows itself. Cause us, Father, to see this transformation. Thank you. Until Jesus returns, we pray through his advocacy and that of our intercessor, the Holy Spirit. Amen.